the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's cautioning them, don't go around talking about this right now. My crucifixion is imminent. That's the language he's talking about here. Son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, going to be crucified. He's giving them the picture of the crucifixion. It's not registering with them, but what he's telling them is, in essence, I'm on a divine timetable. Jesus had a timeline that he followed in his time on earth. The events in his ministry weren't random. God knew each step and encounter and where they would all lead. Jesus' timetable led him to the ultimate sacrifice for sin and then defeating the enemy by rising from the dead. God's plans were perfect, and Jesus always trusted his heavenly Father. Pastor Gary will remind you today that God's timing is perfect. He is never late. Trust that He's in control and that He is leading you to the right place. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 9 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, so what we're talking about is Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Hebrew translates house of Fish. It was a fishing village. It, it was more likely in the day of Jesus that this was a coastal town. The Sea of Galilee now has kind of uh, withdrawn and receded a bit. So Bethsaida is not on the Sea of Galilee today, but it was believed in Jesus' day that it was uh, because it's called a, a house of fish. It was a fishing village located there on the Sea of Galilee. It was uh, the place that Peter and Andrew and Philip were from. So three of his disciples, this is their hometown. So they go back there, and Jesus is going to retreat with them, have a little R&R. But it says in verse 11, the crowds learned about it. Got all the paparazzi getting the word out. You know, they're tweeting, hey, we just saw Jesus, you know, meet us at Bethsaida. And so, you know, everybody starts showing up. It hits social media. I mean, can you imagine how crazy it would have been in the day if they had social media like that? Jesus would have not had peace at all. But here they are trying to get away and all the crowds come. And Jesus is gracious. He, he doesn't, you know, refuse them. What does he do? He welcomed them, it says in verse 11. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. So, you know, ongoing ministry. But now look, so it's late in the day, and his disciples are calculating, listen, a lot of people here, thousands of people, it's late in the day, they're going to get hungry, it's a remote place. And what do they do? They go to Jesus, and they encourage him, you need to send these people away. They need to get some food here. There's nothing. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's nothing here. You need to send the people away. Now, this is kind of curious to me. Why? 
Because Jesus then, when he responds and he says, well, you give them something to eat. You feed them. And they're like, ah, we don't really have anything. And Luke's gospel tells us that they have five loaves of bread and two fish. But John's gospel tells us that they stole it from a little boy. Yeah, John's gospel says that a little boy, it was a little boy's lunch, and Andrew took the lunch and gave it to Jesus. Now, I don't know if the boy gave it willingly or not. What was his disposition? You know, I don't know. Hey, that's my lunch. I don't know. But they don't even provide what they are offering. It comes from a little kid in the crowd. So they don't even have five loaves and two fish. They get it from a little boy, but that's what they present to Jesus. And they are still of the mindset that this is not enough. This is why I find it curious. They just got back a few verses ago from going around preaching the gospel and healing the sick with the power, dunamis of the spirit and exousia authority of Jesus. And they don't have enough after you've done all that. Can you imagine if you had spent, I don't know how long, a few days, a couple of weeks going around preaching the gospel and every person you prayed for and laid hands on, you make your way through Loudon Hospital. And every person you pray for, they're getting up out of their beds. They're getting up out of their beds. And you're just like, man, Jesus is incredible. He's working through me in an incredible way. And then just like the next day, you're like, oh, we have us five loaves and and two fish. We can't do a single thing. Seriously? Do you have any concept of what just happened through you? And now you're going to question we we had to steal a kid's lunch because we don't have dinner for these people? So there's a disconnect here with the disciples. And I think to myself, how often is a similar disconnect in my own heart and life when the Lord does something wonderful and I can turn around the next minute and not believe him for something less. And so here they are. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing for them. You better send them away. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. There's an application here. There's a principle here. Listen, when you see the need, respond indeed. That's what he's saying to us. How many people seem to have the ministry of somebody else? You ever notice those Christians? They like they see a need and they're experts at thinking somebody else should do it. If you see the need, respond indeed. Maybe you've seen the need because God wants to use you to respond to the need. Don't hand it off to somebody else. The disciples were like trying to hand it off to Jesus. We see the need, but somebody else needs to do it. How about you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, how about you? You're the one that saw it. How about you do something? I only have five loaves of bread and a couple of fish here. That'll be fine. Because a little bit with Jesus is more than enough. Now Luke tells us, and different from the other Gospels, doesn't change the story at all, but Luke is just specific here about how Jesus said to them, have everybody sit down in groups of 50. He wants this to be a manageable distribution here. And the Lord just prays over what is there And this is a miraculous reproduction of bread and fish. And, you know, Hollywood has tried to portray this so that we can get an idea what this looks like. If you've ever seen any, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or, you know, any of those classic uh, movies or films about this. And as people are, you know, digging in the basket, it just, it just is an endless supply. I remember many years ago when we first started the church and we probably had only maybe 200 people and we were having our church picnic back in the day before we had our property down the road, we had our church picnic down in Sterling at Algonquian Park. And I remember, it was back in the day when I, I was doing everything, right? So I went and got burgers. I bought the burgers. I bought the charcoal. And I got everything. I hauled it to Algonquian. And more people showed up than I had thought. 
And, you know, and, and I had some guys there helping me from the church, and we're flipping the burgers, and I'm looking at the line, and I'm looking at the burgers that are left, and I'm like, there's no way. And one guy in the church, his name was Carl, Carl said, you know what, we just need to pray, God's going to multiply these burgers. And I remember thinking to myself, get real, come on, you know, is that terrible? I'm the pastor, and I'm thinking inside of my head, get real, come on. But Carl was just the faith of a little kid. He's just like, I'm just going to keep flipping these burgers and God's going to multiply them. And he'd flip the burgers and he'd take them over to a pan where people then would, you know, dig out of the pan the hamburgers that they wanted. And then he'd come back and throw more burgers on. And that line kept going through it. I kept going back to the pan and the pan just never got lower and lower. I kept coming back and going back and forth and thinking any minute now that pan's going to be empty. I got to bring a pan back for Carl to flip some more burgers. And every time I go back for the pan, there'd still be burgers in. I'd see it go down a little bit, but not in proportion to what it looked like to my eyes. The line was. And at the end of the day, I'm just like, wow, wow, Jesus multiplied the burgers. And Carl looked at me and he said, I think I've been saying that all day long, pastor. (laughs) But anyway, this is, you know, this is an incredible thing here. You know, it's great when somebody in the church preaches to the pastor. That's always very uplifting, but I needed to hear it. So, you know, here's this miracle going on here. Now, we leave this scene, and in verse 18, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us that they're going to go to Caesarea Philippi, which is up north, past Golan Heights in Israel. It's about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to come to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It was named after Augustus Caesar in conjunction with Philip. So he kind of made both of their names together, Augustus Philip, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And they come to this scene here where Jesus is going to ask them. Well, look at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's cautioning them, don't go around talking about this right now. My crucifixion is imminent. That's the language he's talking about here. Son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, going to be crucified. He's giving them the picture of the crucifixion. It's not registering with them, but what he's telling them is, in essence, I'm on a divine timetable. And I want you to rush this, and I want you to, so don't go around proclaiming this just yet. There's going to be a time I'm going to be crucified. Now, he's going to repeat it in the same chapter, because they don't comprehend this at the moment. But this is this great scene here in Caesarea Philippi. Today it's called um, Banyas. In the second century, the Greeks named it Panyas, with a P, after the Greek god Pan. Pan was kind of that you know, if you ever had Greek mythology in school growing up, it's kind of that weird guy who was half goat and half man, and he was like God of the fields and God of like music, and he always was playing a flute, and you know, it was a kind of strange creature, right? You know, he looked kind of like the head of a man with like goat ears, and then at his torso it turned into a goat, you know, goat man. It's just a really weird looking thing. But the Greeks set up this town as a place of worship to the god Pan. Now, when it came into Arab control before Israel recaptured it after the 67 war, it's kept the Arabic pronunciation 
of the Greek word panias, but the Arabs can't pronounce a P, so they named it banyas. Uh, so if you ever really want to make an Arab guy go crazy, ask him to repeat Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. It'll drive him crazy. But anyway, so they can't pronounce P's very well, so it's banyas. But in ancient times, it was called Caesarea Philippi. And this is that location where Peter makes this great pronouncement about who Jesus is. Now, Matthew 16 details this a lot more than Luke does. So I'm not going to go back and cover everything that uh, Matthew does in Matthew 16. But I do want to just kind of remind us again. Jesus says here, who do the crowds say that I am? What is the popular opinion out there about my identity? This is what Jesus is saying. And they tell him, well, here's what people commonly think. They think maybe you're John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're one of the prophets of old. You know, there's some confusion as to who you really are. And so then he turns to them, he says, well, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter makes this great profession of faith that you are the Christ. It's from a Greek word, Christos. It just means the anointed one. The equivalent word in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's where we get our our English word Messiah. So if you say Messiah or Christ, you're saying the same word. Both words translate Mashiach and Christos translate anointed one. So Peter say, you're the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited promise. You're the son of God. And he gets it right. But there is this confusion in the world outside of this circle as to the identity of Jesus. And the same exists in our world today as well. So just for purposes of quick clarification, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm just going to highlight uh, four main confusing ideas about who Jesus is. And so, of course, we have the Muslim view. The Muslim view of Jesus is that he is a prophet inferior to Muhammad and that Jesus was not crucified, nor did he rise from the dead. That's straight out of the Quran, Surah chapter 4, verses 157 to 159. That's what Muslims believe. Jesus is not the Son of God, that he is not God in flesh, that he did not die on the cross for our sins. They believe that he is a prophet, an esteemed prophet, but a prophet inferior to Muhammad. That's what Muslims teach. Now, I got a C in logic in college, but I remember one law called the law of non-contradiction, which basically means that two opposing ideas cannot both be right. They can both be wrong, but they cannot both be right. And the problem that we have in our culture today is as I make my way down this list, is you have people who are confused as to the identity of Jesus in our world, and you have some people, even in the church, who think that, yeah, Muslims and Christians, we worship the same God. They just call him Allah, and, you know, we call him Yahweh or Jesus. And that is just simply not true. The Quran teaches a different Jesus. We do not worship the same God. It is incorrect to say that the view that Muslims have of Jesus and the biblical view of Jesus are one and the same. They are completely different. Now, the Quran was written around 600 AD. You have to start to ask yourself, what is the most legitimate and reliable source of history? Is it an eyewitness account, such as the Gospels record the words of Jesus? 
Or is it a book that was written 600 years after Jesus that tells us something differently from what Jesus said about himself? The same contradiction you have in conflict among the Mormon faith. The Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. It is printed right in one of their books written by Milton Hunter, The Gospel Through the Ages. Sounds like a very evangelical book, doesn't it? The Gospel Through the Ages, uh, written about 1945. Uh, but listen, Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Mormon church teaches that a council of gods, small g, got together and decided among the spirit brothers who should be the redeemer, and they picked Jesus, and his spirit brother Lucifer got really ticked off and rebelled. That is the doctrine of the Mormon church. And so then you have to ask yourself, all right, am I going to believe doctrine that is perpetuated by Originally, Joseph Smith, who purports to have found some golden tablets, which are extra-biblical resources in Palmyra, New York, in the 1800s, that only he saw and mysteriously vanished and no one has ever seen again, or do you believe the eyewitness account of the Gospels? Because these are different views. Who do men say that I am? Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was created as the Archangel Michael. You can go right on their website and read that for yourself. It's also printed in their Watchtower book, which is the publishing arm of the Jehovah's Witnesses, called Reasoning from the Scriptures, published in 1989. Jesus is infinitely superior to any person, place, thing, or angel. And Paul said, if I or anyone else preach a gospel to you other than the true gospel, even if an angel presents it to you, let him be eternally condemned. And so this is a very different Jesus. So, you know, are you going to believe something that was written in a book in 1989? Are you going to read the truth about Jesus as revealed in the pages of Scripture? And then, of course, we have, because I don't want to leave our own culture out, we have what I call the Western Jesus, which is this westernized American Jesus, okay? A very... Cool Jesus, very hipster Jesus, very go green, recycle Jesus, kind of a very all-loving, never-judging Jesus, that Jesus, always the guy who helps me win a Grammy or an Emmy or the lottery. You know what I'm saying? Okay? That's the westernized Jesus, blue eyes, blonde hair, feathered. You know what I'm saying to you? And we have distorted the true Jesus to adapt him to our own selfish needs. Oh, he's the loving Jesus. He's the never judging Jesus. Oh, he's, he's a really cool religious figure, looks wonderful, pictures cross around our neck, the whole deal. And we lose sight of who he really is. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 10. He said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus declares, I am God. I am God. Now, in John 10, 31, it says that the Jews who didn't believe in that picked up stones getting ready to stone him. Why? Because they heard that as something blasphemous. You, Jesus, have just equated yourself to be God. So they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus responds and he says, I've performed many miracles. For which of those miracles do you stone me? And in John 10, 32, the Jews say to him, not for any of the miracles are we going to stone you, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
Jesus made a very clear claim. I am God. I am God in flesh. And it was true, but to unbelieving Jews, to their ears, it sounded blasphemous because they didn't believe it, so they wanted to stone him for it. A few chapters later, in John 14, Jesus says that all-famous verse, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Philip, one of his own disciples, said, well, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. I mean, you know, Philip's like, well, why don't you just show us God, and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus in a slight rebuke, he says, Philip, have I been with you all this time, and yet you still do not believe? And there in John 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The claims of Christ are simple and clear. He is God in flesh. He is not a prophet inferior to Muhammad. He is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. He is not the archangel Michael. He is not this fanciful, meet-all-my-needs, westernized Jesus. He is God in flesh who died on a cross for the sins of the world, was buried three days, rose after that, and then ascended into heaven and is coming again. That is Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's Jesus. So when Jesus says to his own disciples, who does the world say? They give him the latest news of the world. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter properly responds on behalf of all of them. So listen, we have to understand who Jesus is. We have a culture that is very confused. We have a culture that is very messed up. We can't all be right. You're going to have to make a decision. Who is Jesus? Do you believe the eyewitness claims of the gospel? Or are you going to take books and records and things that were said about him and written hundreds of years and even thousands of years after he made these claims? Go to the eyewitness source. Those are the most reliable. And so as Jesus says he is, so we believe. Well, as we read on here, verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, circle that word daily. Luke is the only one who, quote, who uses that word daily. Some of the other gospel writers say take up his cross, but Luke emphasizes this word of Jesus when Jesus said daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So this very challenging words here. Uh, You have to be all in or not at all, is what Jesus is saying here. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. The cross was a symbol of death, suffering, shame, and death. Jesus was saying, you're going to have to die to self every day. Now, dying to self is different from self-denial. We practice self-denial every day, too. You know, if you you don't want to get too fat, you've got to practice a little self-denial from certain foods. Um... If you realize certain things aren't good for you, or certain places you shouldn't go, then you practice self-denial because you don't want to eat this, you don't want to do that. You don't. And so, you know, those are disciplines. That's okay. But this is not just simply disciplines. This is a dying to self. And he speaks here in paradoxical terms. Jesus will often say things that sound, to our ears, a little contradictory, but it's not. The paradox is, in saying to us, if you want to save your life, 
you're going to have to lose it. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.